Hi, this is Will Voss, author of The Man Who Received a Severe Mercy. You're listening to Pints with Jack. What we need for the moment is not so much a body of belief as a body of people familiarized with certain ideas. If we could even effect in 1% of our readers a change over from the conception of space to the conception of heaven, we should have made a beginning. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 26. Heaven is for real. Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 22 and Postscript. Welcome everyone here on Pints with Jack, where we reading, I almost said weeding, our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I am Matt, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Father Andrew, and, uh, well, David's a father too, technically. <laughs> Dad David. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> this season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. And really, I should say we find ourselves finishing the first of C.S. Lewis' science fiction trilogy because we have come finally to the closing pages of Out of the Silent Planet. So we're going to be discussing the final chapter, and there's a twist revealed, after which we'll talk about the postscript and hear from Professor Ransom himself. Now, this will be the last episode where we choose a title. And so I chose this out of a selection of three that David provided. But I liked Heaven is for Real because as you guys have known, we have discussed many times, and I put this in the quote of the week, of Lewis's desire for us to almost reclaim the imagination of the heavens. But imagination almost makes it seem like this fake idea, like a, a real teeming life. Think of the Trinitarian dance that we see in mere Christianity, almost like it's pulsating with life up there. And so that's why I like this. Heaven is for real. But nevertheless, I digress. We will get more into that later in this chapter, clearly. So gentlemen, how are we feeling as we wrap this book up? I'm feeling good. I'm excited to reach the end and start having an opportunity to mull things over and reach some conclusions. Uh, and I'm also feeling good because I'll be in Chicago next week for work and I'm going to be visiting the Wade Center. Hey! Yay. Yeah. And Matt, do you remember John Stanifer? We gave him a lift from yes. the uh, Montreat Conference. I'm going to be having coffee with I him uh, just before no I go to the Wade. And his fiancée, Laura, gets me all of the Wade treasures that I want to read. Oh, Does she work at the Wade Center? Man. Mm -hmm. She's the archivist. Remember when we had the virtual tour, she was the one that showed us through the reading room. That is so cool. Laura is one of my favorite people anywhere. And oh my gosh, I envy you. I just spoke with Marge Mead today. Um, Kristen and I are going to maybe plan a couple of weeks uh, over the summer. May finish up my, uh, my last uh, grad school class and go and do some of my treatise writing at the Wade. Um, yeah, and and Laura Schmidt is amazing, and she is so helpful and knows so much. Listeners, I heartily encourage you to uh, imitate our dear David and get to the Wade as quickly <laughs> as you can. I'm doing well, just slugging along, just uh, finished a sermon for um, the seventh Sunday of Easter, so touching a little bit on the Ascension, and um, yeah, looking forward to visiting with a C.S. Lewis friend this this coming weekend and 
carrying on. I'm intrigued with how this episode is going to go. It's been a brutal few days at work, so I'm exhausted. Mm. And I can't see David's face, thus I can't experience. <laughs> when he's when he's when he's looking at you, you can sense the Batesian rigidity. Like, all right, come on, let's get going. Uh, but now <laughs> I have no facial cues of any of that. So between a just convoluted brain right now, exhausted brain, and no Batesian rigidity staring me in the face, this could be a very interesting episode. Okay, how about this? <laughs> Andrew, <laughs> Father Lazo, it's just not quite the same. <laughs> You need to look angrier and more stressed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, gentlemen, what is everyone drinking today? Well, I am drinking a Newcastle brown ale. Uh, I haven't had one of these in uh, an age, so I'm quite excited. I am between beers. I got some beer from Aldi's <laughs> and it was, uh, it's some independence brown and it just felt too American to drink. Um, so I am still, still thinking about that stout, I've been thinking about it all week. So, um, yeah, maybe Mr. Boland will take pity on us and send us a six-pack. Uh, that was just <laughs> the finest. It's it's hard to come down after that. So I thought about um, uh, pin- finishing up, a, polishing off a few bottles. So a year ago when Malcolm Geit came, he brought me a lovely bottle of Jura. So this is the last half dram of that. Um, Malcolm actually was just at the Wade Center last week. And so... You're in good company. And then when I finish that half dram, I've got David's or Matt's favorite. Mm. I've got a uh, little McAllen 12 that I will uh, I will deal with. Um, visited a friend last weekend and he gave me a few Cuban cigars. And so what I may do is just open up the McAllen and then just, you know, um, push some push some cigars. No, 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 no. Smoke it myself. You might like as well it. just give that McCallan away, Andrew. That is just a disgrace <laughs> to McCallan. I'm going to give it away to my belly. <laughs> How about you, Matt? What are you drinking? I needed a stiff drink, so I switched up. First time I think I'm ever having an old-fashioned. I made it by hand. Ooh, I, I got home, nice. and I was like, I need an old-fashioned. Hmm. I will have to check the archives, but I think this is actually the second time you've done that. I will definitely <laughs> not disagree, because the last time I did, I was wrong. You've got <laughs> archives about that. My memory <laughs> tends to fail me pretty Pretty meaningfully. Um, and gentlemen, today we're going to be saying cheers in Greek. Your and, favorite language. Wow. That, <laughs> <laughs> you were just waiting to say that. You just Did you literally save that for the last episode just so you could Absolutely, I did. <laughs> uh, there we go. Um, it's all yeah, Greek to me. I don't know how to say this. St- I've written it phonetically mass? afterwards. That still doesn't help, David. Stiniamas? Stiniamas? Stin yamas. Stin yamas. So cheers in Greek. Stin yamas. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Great. Well, today we're toasting our top tier Patreon supporter, Stuart F. Stuart, may this uh, Pentecost season that we'll be coming into be full of the Holy Spirit and his love and guidance for you um, as you, you carry on. And we thank you for your support. So to Stuart F. Stin yamas. Stin yamas. Stinyamas. Stinyamas. Okay, trying something new for the Ching. Shouldn't it be like salud or something? Or opa or Did something? Did you hear like that? that? <laughs> Here, try this again. It's um, it's my chime uh, against my Glencairn glass. All right, ready? Cheers. If the dogs are now freaking out in your house, uh, you need to start <laughs> listening to this podcast with headphones.
Or maybe your dog needs to stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, you shouldn't be feeding pearl to swines. Well, I was going to say, go? there's a, there, we at least have one person listening to our podcast who has a dog collar. So, oh, woof. <laughs> Listeners, I just got in from work, and so I, uh, I sometimes wear my collar to, to you know, to straighten things out or just to feel priestly. So give us the recap, Matt. Yes. Ransom is kidnapped and taken to Mars. He escaped his captors and lives among the Harasa. All the humans come before Oyarsa, the guardian of the planet who questions them. One of Ransom's captors wants the gold of Mars. The other wishes to spread humanity among the stars, displacing the populations they find along the way. Oyarsa sends them back to Earth. After enduring the grueling journey, Ransom wakes up to find his abductors have fled. He leaves the crumbling ships and makes his way to the nearest pub for a pint of bitters. Yes. Cheers. Cheers, guys. We begin the final chapter, I, I think, with a bang. You know, Lewis comes out right away, essentially taking the gloves off, no punches, and practically says it's time to, not practically, actually says, it's time to remove the mask and to acquaint the reader with the real and practical purpose for which this has been written. In addition, we learn that this story, which Lewis is writing, is based on fact, but the characters' names have changed a little bit. <laughs> and we also learn that Dr. Ransom originally gave up on telling this story. So first of all, before getting into some of this, gentlemen, when he says it's time to remove the mask, do you feel like he's just practically saying, if you didn't get the message, here's what it is? I mean, why do you think he starts with that blunt of language? Well, he's lying to us. Lewis, the actual person, is has created a persona, Lewis, the author, and Lewis, the author, lies to us. And so it's a device. It's an untrustworthy narrator. And before David can get to it, uh, it reminds us, of course, of Orwell, who's not telling us the truth from the very beginning. And who also has to remove her mask. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Got that cir circled. So it's an unreliable narrator. And there's a problem with it. Um, it's in the second paragraph. We won't really get to the why it's such a problem until we read Paralandra. But in Paralandra, um, Malaldil, Jesus, says to Ransom, my name is Ransom too. But here, Lewis mm -hmm. says, Ransom, at this stage, and at this stage, it will become obvious that this is not his real name. So Lewis didn't really think that out, and nor did he, when he wrote Paralandra, go back to correct it. And you can probably come up with an explanation like, maybe Ransom's real name is Salvador or something. But, mm -hmm. um, I think here Lewis is being a little sloppy. <laughs> okay. And then uh, we also learned that Dr. Ransom wasn't going to originally tell the story. So he went experienced all of this but wasn't going to write anything down why was that this bit i find quite surprising we're told that he was ill for several months after he mm -hmm. returned which is what happens when you cook inside a metal sphere for a couple of months and then the first thing you do when you get out is go and drink alcohol uh, so don't do that kids uh, but <laughs> his illness makes him doubt that his memories are actually correct and there's a comment here that indicates that one can pretty much explain away anything 
psychoanalytically if one wishes to. So it's all about the mm-hmm. um, preconceived notions, the prejudices that we bring to it, which has been a repeated motif throughout this story. But I've got to ask, how long has Ransom been away? Did anybody notice that he was gone? Because if people notice he's gone, then that has to be explained. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's on the long vague. Um, uh, is that how you pronounce it, David? Long vac, long vague? Uh, I I never shortened it. Okay, I yeah. think it's long vague. <laughs> it's the long vacation. Trinity term ends in uh, mid June, and doesn't resume again until October, uh, the beginning of October. Mm-hmm. And so that's the long vacation. That, by the way, is why Lewis, after his conversion in June of 1930, doesn't start going to chapel again until October of 1930, because chapel wasn't open then. Yeah, so I guess maybe July, August, September, October, maybe three and a half months, something something like that. That just doesn't leave a lot of time for Malacandra to travel there and back and actually do stuff. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. And so that's another, I think that's a plot hole. Um, in Lewis. And I think that if we brought it up at the pub, people would be asking him and then he would probably bluster and so and say, oh, well, he had a sabbatical. He had three terms of sabbatical. He was there you go. Fixed it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, it's a real slam against psychoanalysis, right? A good many real things could be accounted for in the same way if you started with assumptions that they were illusions, right? And so it's a slam, I think, on at least popularly understood psychoanalysis. I also thought it was a little interesting in that section how, not to read too much into it, but just classic example of human psychology again, of how he experienced this very real thing. And then the negative influence is now that he's back in the silent planet. He started to doubt whether it was actually real or not. So it wasn't just that he didn't think he could convince the world it was real. He wasn't sure it was himself. He started to get some doubts, it says. And I was like, wow. Because you had a bunch of positive influences happening when he was outside of, call it the pole of out of the silent planet. Uh, and now it feels like he's back within these confines and there's negative influences. And I mean, talk about mm-hmm. self-doubt. And we've all kind of experienced that. You know, when we see something really real, we feel conversion really real. We feel Christ really real. And then we like, you know, was it though? Hmm. Well, and maybe the illness is not so much the ale or the or the cooking in the in the ship, but maybe it's being back in this poisonous world. And mm. also yeah. the the doubt in his own mind is now that he's back in the sphere of the prince of the power of the air whose native language is lies. And so um I imagine mm-hmm. that there may be some spiritual influence to this as well. Yes. Well, nevertheless, despite these negative spiritual influences potentially and the intention not to tell the story, it does eventually get told because we're sitting here reading it. Now, this came about through the quote-unquote fake Lewis or character Lewis. The narrative, the persona Lewis. Persona Lewis, Lewis, I like that. Persona Lewis. And the relationship with Ransom. So how did that develop? How did we go from not doing it to the relationship to actually writing it? Well, Lewis wrote a letter to Ransom saying that he'd been working on some Latin text of a 12th century Platonist, and that there was a word that he wanted uh, some consultation, he wanted some help with. And it was in the work of Bernardus Silvestris, uh, and it describes a voyage through the heavens and mentions Oyases, which are described as tutelary spirits of a heavenly sphere. 
And Lewis asks Ransom about it and what language he thinks it might be. And so, of course, for Ransom, this is a big deal because he has met Oyasa. And we, we also find out apparently that Lewis's friend CJ thought that it was a corruption from a Greek word, Usiakes, I think that's how you pronounce it, meaning supreme being or source of existence. And I discovered that this CJ is actually probably a reference to uh, an Oxford philosopher and historian called Clement CJ Webb, who was at Magdalen. And mm -hmm. I also discovered that there's a discussion about this very word in the appendix of the Allegory of Love. So this has all got very meta and very life-imitating art. But <laughs> to answer your question, Lewis writes to Ransom, he's discovered this word, does he know about it? And of course... Ransom now wants to talk to him uh, because he has a story to tell. And obviously, Lewis had no idea where this was going to go. I'm, I'm curious, David, did you look this up or Andrew? First of all, is Bernardus Silvestris a real person? Yes. Yeah. And did he use the word Oyarsis like in, mm -hmm. in real actual life? And then Lewis kind of used that term for... Yeah. He this. talks about it in The Allegory of Love. Ah, all right. So it's a real person. That's cool. Although in the first couple of pages, I think the first chapter, uh, first or second chapter of Paralandra, Lewis does make up this Latin writer called Notvilcius or not Notvilcius. And that's Lewis. And then it has this kind of scholarly passage that he quotes. Um, but Notvilcius is one of Lewis's nicknames, not Wilk. And so he's not, uh, no, uh, not above um, creating somebody, making something up. I saw the Louisiana note about um, about Webb, C.J. Webb. I also wonder whether it might have been C.E.M. Jode, who I believe Lewis worked with, may have worked with on the Oxford History of English Literature, and was a uh, appeared uh, a number of times at the Socratic Club. And so uh, I may uh, may have to send a note to Arend and say. Might want to dig a little deeper. Was the 12th century the beginning of the medieval period or the end? The medieval period runs from about 500 to about 1500. Okay, so so these the would be considered the High Middle Ages. Okay, I wasn't sure too as we as we are about to learn that they believe this was the kind of the beginning of the celestial year that Eorcys talks about, and I wasn't sure if this was his way of saying, you know, at this point in time the thinking was proper. You know, heavens, the medieval cosmos, all the stuff we've talked about plenty of times, beating a dead horse on. And then fast forward 800, 900 years from then, and we're now starting to get away from heavens to space. If that's why Lewis chose the 12th century for that. What do you guys think? Uh, well, a celestial year is 2,160,000 years. I was just referring to it. So it means it could go for a long time. But doesn't he say a little bit later here or in the postscript that... Uh, he believes the Arceus was referring to the beginning of the celestial year in the 12th century. All he says is that they're in the same celestial year. So it could have begun earlier, but we don't know. But I do think you're right to point out the fact that Lewis is going back to a medieval author. And throughout mm -hmm. all of this, he's been giving us a medieval view of the cosmos, albeit mm -hmm. one that's okay. eventually fixed and heliocentric. That gets fleshed out to some degree in the discarded image um, and elsewhere in Lewis. And, and Michael Ward, of course, puts all that stuff together beautifully. But it does beg the question, did a 12th century Platonist have some contact with the Oyasa of Mars or of another planet? Has there been contact before? Or 
do they both share a common ancestry and that this is uh, information that is, has passed through both, both planets independently. Hmm. Or maybe Lewis is just making it up to, <laughs> to explain something. <laughs> to mess with us. My thinking would be given Oyarsi's lack of deep knowledge of the silent planet and the conversation he had, and they didn't have the way to be able to travel through space with a spaceship. I wouldn't guess. I feel like it's like leaked information rather than someone else traveled and transported there in the 12th century would be my guess. That seems like a good theory. Okay. Well, I was about ready just to say till we have faces to make myself sound more right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyways, we had this inquiry from Lewis, bringing it back to the chapter and Ransom invites him for uh, a long weekend. That was interesting. Oh, is that, is that a British thing by the way, David? He's, he did week hyphen end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an alternative spelling. Yeah. There we go. In, in that weekend, Ransom tells Lewis the entire story we just read. Ever since then, they've been working together. And he says that they've been almost continuously at work on the mystery. And honestly, my first reading, I almost missed that. And so what mystery are they referring to, guys? I think it's what we mentioned a moment ago. How is it that a 12th century Platonist is, is mentioning the name of a creature that governs the planet Mars? Did they have some kind of contact? Is there some ancient knowledge behind both? Trying to explain that mystery. That's what they're trying to unpack. And one of the things I think Lewis is doing is he's trying to kind of gather all things together. And, you know, as we'll see in Paralandra, kind of citing another source from the medieval period. And then in that hideous strength, he brings back a medieval figure in Merlin and Ransom becomes Arthur. And so I think Lewis is, and then later on in the discarded image, I think that Lewis is trying to make a medieval case um, for, or make a case for considering um, some of the elements of the medieval period as not just back there and long ago, but mm. still active and present in our current world. So, um, and I think he's just unpacking and, and, and tracing through some of that stuff. I mean, we start to see here in a little bit later too, that they didn't just come out and say this, like project this to the local media sources, write this into the papers, talk about it as a statement of fact, and just share this with everyone from the top of the mountains. Why was that? Well, they suggest that it would lead to incredulity if they just came out and said it. And it would result in a libel action from whoever it is, uh, <laughs> the, the person on whom Western is based. Fake news in the 40s? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but because they believe that the forces behind Western are going to make, play this really important role, not only on Earth and Mars, but throughout the whole cosmos, Lewis and Ransom see they've just got to stop him. And so they go with a novel instead, because mm. Ransom thought that fiction would get a fairer hearing and reach a wider audience than Western's scientific communities. And although Lewis is a little less convinced, he's worried that if we present this as fiction, this is how it's going to be received, Ransom is insistent that there are enough clues in the story that the few people who realize what's going on will recognize the truth and seek them out. Hmm. But even if they don't explicitly realize that this is a true story, there has been enough here to sneak past their watchful dragons to help them in this larger battle in which they're participating. This is the famous line we've quoted many times. Uh, what we need for the moment is not so much a body of belief as a body of people familiarized with certain ideas. And that's what will happen from reading this book. 
Maybe we can get some people to change over from space to the heavens. And he sees that as significant. Mm-hmm. When I like that you use the word battle, because this, this actually harkens back to the conversation with the Arces when you talk about the celestial year. And this was going to be a revolutionary one. And so there's this battle of beliefs going on. And I actually thought it was a little bit interesting. It says here, and we have also evidence increasing almost daily that Weston or the force or forces behind Weston will play a very important part in the events of the next few centuries. And unless we prevent them, a very disastrous one. And so I actually thought it was interesting to say the forces behind Weston. So there's just some bigger force going on here, some bigger spiritual battle that's going on here. And they felt this deep need to write it. They couldn't do it through just nonfiction. Let us just state what happens. But as we know, Lewis loves to sneak ideas behind the role of fiction. And so there was an opportunity here. Yeah. Well, and as I talked about, uh, I think probably in my first interview with you guys, when you had me on about Till We Have Faces, Lewis says in 1955 um, that he is writing indirect theology and trying to catch the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. And it's an indirect or a rearguard attack. And so uh, I think that when Lewis is writing fiction, he's kind of doing it um, Christianly and he's doing it in his native voice. And I think that this is kind of his first attempt to do that. He tried to write a direct allegory with Pilgrim's Regress, and he admittedly made it too difficult for people. And so I think this is his first uh, his first attempt at kind of doing a, a backdoor um, a spiritual attack. Well, let me ask this question real quick, just in a, a simple summary from you guys. What is the uh, just uh, just a rehash real quick of what what is the 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 thing we're battling against as a reminder to our listeners i mean we just <laughs> it's a revolutionary battle there's a spiritual battle felt the need to tell this story but let's just remind what what do you what is it not against flesh and blood for certain yeah but principalities and powers. the archon of Thulchandra, right mm. and we'll see in paralandra paralandra without you know giving too much away we'll certainly see um, the force behind Weston, um, and so it's a there's some there's some spiritual elements going on here that he's that he's playing with. Well, and one of the one of the things too, if we go back to I believe it was last it was last time we recorded, but I think we did too, so I don't remember which chapter it was. We as a fallen in Tokandra have this knowledge of death. We don't have the wisdom of how to die. We're going to see that in the postscript a bit. That Lewis is going to reassert that that's an incredibly important message he's trying to communicate here and that fear you know we we talked about fear a good bit in one of the previous episodes one of the last two and attempting that fear is i think really hindering individuals and so that i think that's one huge thing if i had to name it and then the other one is again the space versus in heavens we see that right here at the end he goes even if we can affect one percent of our readers with a change from space to heaven they would have done something so it continues to just Literally beat that theme like a dead horse. Well, or a live horse. Um, I think that he wants to ride it away. Um, and like part that. of why he yeah. wants to change it from being space to being the heavens is he's taking a real active role in opposing um, space planet, uh, interplanetary travel. Um, and there's a great correspondence, there's great correspondence with him and Arthur C. Clarke, the author of 2001 A Space Odyssey and the, the founder of the British Interplanetary Society who had asked Lewis to come and speak. 
And Lewis said, I won't come and speak. I really oppose your aims of, of colonizing space. And so that's the shift in seeing space as the heavens and as already inhabited is um, part of Lewis just arguing against the inhumanity of bringing humanity to any other planet. Mm. Well, Andrew, now, I, I don't know why I didn't think of this. The two motivations I just described, understanding of death, like a proper understanding, like not this negative fear, and mm -hmm. space to heavens are two insanely interrelated. If you view the cosmos as the heavens that we're just a part of, and when we die, we enter into eternity, you overcome the first issue, the fear of death, because you realize you're a part of this bigger story and it's just an unbodying that's happening. And so those, those are two very related things. Anything else from that chapter, gentlemen? I did want to point out that Lewis explains that a lot has happened since the original events on Malacandra. He says these events have already made it rather a prologue to our story rather than the story itself. For the later stages of the adventures, well, that's another story. I'm not quite sure what he's referring to here. Is it the events of World War II? Is it the advancements in jet propulsion and the world is starting to gear up towards space travel? Or is he talking about the events of Paralandra and that hideous strength? My vote, uneducated vote, is it's the first one. I think World War II just wreaked havoc on ideology, eugenics. I mean, I, there's an actual section in that we didn't talk about with uh, Dr. Glyer or Diana Glyer was um, the influence of Nazism during this time period. So at least that that book that she was the editor of, there was an entire essay on that. So my vote is the World War II almost made it seem like a lot of the negative stuff is playing out. The worldview is taking root. Humanity is justifying eugenics. Um, justifying killing certain types of individuals under the disguise of further advancing the race. That'd be my thought. I think I agree with you. Um, I also agree with you, but not with such a surprised tone. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, thank you, David, Sorry. for pointing that out. Let me out. try that, Let me try I was that like, again. I'm so used to this. This is okay. Sorry. But, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Let me try that again. I'm um, kidding. Andrew. Yeah, no, Matt, I... Uh, <laughs> Taylor, keep all this in. Just <laughs> trying, I'm trying. Matt, you are unsurprisingly correct. I love David. Wait, 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 no, we got to stop this now too. David, you just, I'm trying, I'm trying. It takes effort <laughs> for him to sound not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> he has to try. <laughs> no, Matt, I think that you're spot on, as you always are. <laughs> I never disagree. Nor, yeah. <laughs> no, actually, yeah, yeah, I I agree. Um, I think that, and in thirty eight, Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany, and everybody, or is it thirty six? I think it's thirty six, and so you can see the run up really happening. And there are these kind of political forces. They've survived the depression. Um, I think that people in Europe really kind of understood what was about to happen. If this is true, do you guys then think Paralandra? I don't even remember Paralandra. It's been so long. I've actually read that one. but It does take place during World War II. There are references to blackout curtains. Yeah, because essentially what I was going to say is he wrote this book to warn against these things happening. Then they happen really fast. So my thinking would be the next type of book you'd write is, all right, they're here. How do we reverse this? How do we combat it? Does that happen in Paralandra? Does it, does it 
feel different in that sense? We'll have to yes. wait for season eight. I'm not going to ruin any more of the trilogy for people just yet. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Well, all right, let's move on, guys, to the postscript, which was really unique. Because you're right, David, I, I mistaken that. We had another chat, Top 22 is the postscript. Notice I was not surprised by that statement. You were right, David. Um, just kind of used to okay. saying those words. You and Marie should form a support Anyways, group. It's my cork cool. is going, so I'm going to have to go for <laughs> on the rest you of the McAllen. <laughs> that's that's McAllen. That's McAllen. Looks dumb. That is way too dark. That's the twelve. It's been there. It's been there so long that the cork is eating away, and so I can't stick the cork back in. So I'm gonna. Just I mean, I totally it. believe you, but that looks double the darkness. I have such a hard time believing you right now. David's seeing the same thing I'm seeing. It mm-hmm. must be the lighting. Um, no, it looks dark from here. It's very dark amber. Yeah. I guess it is just a superior scotch. Doesn't need any fire smokiness in there to dilute the BS of the. You're pushing your luck. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm two for two today. Two for two. Um, anyway, so we're in a postscript. And I thought this was interesting because, and I actually want to get you guys' thoughts before we dive into this, like really high level. Was this written uh, years later or immediately after? Because it really took the tone of like an author who felt like they didn't fully communicate and got some feedback and needed to throw this on. Here's my theory. I think okay. Lewis wrote this after either reading it to the Inklings or getting feedback oh, yeah. from Tolkien. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. it really <laughs> reeks of all the things that I think Tolkien oh, would, yeah. would want emphasized. We need more stuff about philology. Oh, you're telescoping the day-to-day living yeah. among the Hrossa, oh. among the hobbits of Malacandra. I want more of that, please. Uh, no, of course, uh, like of that. course that's, that, that's got to be the case, I think. Good. I'm glad my my instinct that this just felt added on was correct. Oh yeah, okay. it, it's particularly clear in the um, in the correction, like the shutters, right? Why don't they close their shutters? Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure somebody in the Inklings, uh, probably Dyson, pointed out and uh, needled Lewis over. And so it it, it seemed like, I'm going to construct something around this that's going to save that. There was a reason, huh? (laughs) It might have been Warney, too. You know, a Mm. lifelong um, lover of this, a critic of the space-time novel. And Warney, I think, I forget who it was. It was somebody, it may have been Ruth Bitter, somebody at Lewis's house um, comes over and, you know, it's after the, the Narnias. And she says, Jack, I've got a problem. It's like, yeah, what is? It's been a hundred years winter. Yes. Where do they get the oranges for this gloriously sticky marmalade roll? Smuggled from Kalorman. Boom. And Fixed yeah, it. Lewis fumbles <laughs> over it and 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 makes up something cockamamie. And Warney says, Oh, Jack, she's got you dead to rights, and you know it. Mm-hmm. So um remember that Lewis doesn't have the kind of leisure that Tolkien has to pay real close attention to all the detail. Um, and so I think that there are some some problems and that's part of what's uh, i think and yeah you both are absolutely right you know i think it's the inklings calling him out on stuff and him instead of going back to fix the manuscript just you know covering it over in the postscript i'm not lewis's finest moment as an artisan in my <laughs> but i will add in his defense he finished out of the silent planet the lost road was unfinished so i would prefer a, f- a completed manuscript and a published book with a few issues which uh lewis fans can make up correct answers for uh to defend him than an incomplete manuscript here here i'm in in total agreement one thing that i did really like in this section is 
he speaks about basically the limits of words because he's sad that the story doesn't fully communicate the atmosphere and the people of Mars. He said, I know that Rosa Lewis, that's what you can't get into a mere story. Mm-hmm. And he actually starts with one. I, I, I appreciated this. He couldn't properly communicate the smells. Yeah. I was like, okay. By the way, and I picked this up from Diana. Um, so credit uh, to where credit is due. That line, uh, she didn't specifically refer to this, but that line have to cut down all the philological part. Uh, when you read uh, Bandersnatch or the company they keep, Diana's got a great discussion about how she cut down or how Lewis encouraged Tolkien to cut down the Hobbit talk. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm interested in Hobbits when they're doing things not when you're describing them. And so Tolkien goes back and Diana's got the two different drafts in in her book and he cuts it down. And so I think that that's part of what the Inklings are doing for each other. They're like, hey, yeah, too much philological stuff, but boy, wouldn't you love to get the philological stuff that he cut out? Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if those pages were on a floor somewhere. So I agree with everything you just said, Andrew. But I have to say, this sounds like, going back to what David was saying earlier, this sounds like Tolkien saying, Increase the Hobbit talk. <laughs> yeah. It's what's happening here. <laughs> like, tell me, I wanted to know more about all of this. And so he's like justifying, I couldn't describe all of the the communication and all of the smells and all of the interactions and all of this. Like, mm. it's almost like Tolkien saying, I wanted so much more of this. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's a clue in this text to point to both disagreements and arguments among the Inklings. Uh, that are then projected between Ransom and Lewis. There's a line where Ransom digs at Lewis for knowing the devil of a lot about them, referring to the readers, suggesting that they have crossed swords many times over what to include and what to exclude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you really do get a picture of the process here. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he includes um, in in book two, he he includes uh, Havard, Humphrey Havard, uh, the doctor uh, by name. And I think he mentions Owen as well, Owen Barfield. And so I think that, and remember the Inklings started meeting in about 1933. So they're about five years in and about to kind of enter into the heights of their powers. Um, after this, so the Hobbit's written in the Inklings. Tolkien has started the next Hobbit. Lewis is writing out of the silent planet, Paralandra, um, screw tape letters, and Hugh Goes Home, Lewis's second best book. So they're really in the, uh, in, in the midst of all the good stuff now, I think, as a group. So I'm going to attempt to impose some self-imposed. i just use that twice. Bates and rigidity. Before we move on to the angels, what are a couple other just small things that he felt like they couldn't communicate in here? He's got a lot of random facts about the Hrosa, including their normal temperature, which for me begs the question, how did he find out the temperature of a Rossa? Um, <laughs> he talks about always having a thermometer with him on holiday. Does that mean that he had it with him, not in his pack when he was abducted? Nice. And also, how how has it saved vacations having a thermometer to hand? I don't get that. I have many questions and I only have disturbing <laughs> answers. Uh he also talks about the relationship between the Hanau and lower animals and basically says that they don't Love need that. pets because they get the benefit of the other, there's something different from the other species, but while being able to communicate with them and commune with them as though they were, for want of a better word, men, although they were the same sort of sort of people. Mm-hmm. 
And we also get to hear that the three species were less homogenous than is described in the book. There's apparently a silver crosser, a crested crosser who dances rather than sings. And he saw at least one white cross, like an albino. And there's also a red sawn called a sorrowborn. Mm-hmm. And he's also got some more information about the fiffletriggy, including that they come from eggs. That was a bit of a shocker for me. Yes. Uh, and he says it would be tempting to include a fictional visit to the fiffletriggy lands, uh, which are the ocean beds of Malacandra, uh, to communicate all of this. But he didn't really feel right about making something up basically out of whole cloth rather than just telling the story. He, he just said he wouldn't feel comfortable uh, with Oyasa knowing that. So I think that maybe in this section, not only is Lewis telling us what he cut, well, he's exemplifying what he cut out. I imagine, I'm I'm guessing that these were probably in the first draft, um, but maybe perhaps not quite so helpful. Um, and and I find it, I find this this section kind of delightful. Mm. Even this next section on the Adila, which we'll get to in a second. I'm curious your guys' thoughts and the Shutter Jam. I felt all of this completely unnecessary. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> none of this was crossing my mind. I also recognize I'm not the typical scholarly reader, but I am probably more representative of the average reader. <laughs> and so I'm just like, what? This just all feels like nitpicking stuff. Hence, it's reflecting what they argued about in The Eagle and Child and in Lewis's rooms over a big pot of tea. That's exactly right. That's why I would not have been invited to the Inklings. <laughs> now, it, it seems like so Ransom's answering a question about the Adilla, and it seems to irritate him. What was the question? It seemed that Lewis asked about the nature of the Adilla, and Ransom responds by setting two facts, that the Adilla had bodies different from planetary animals, and that they were of superior intelligence. But he says that these th- two things are independent features of the Aldilla, and that the one doesn't necessarily flow from the other. Just because their kind of body doesn't mean that they're automatically more intelligent. And he actually quotes uh, Chaucer, suggesting that there might be irrational animals of the sort that have Aldilla bodies. Hmm. Like which inkling brings this up? And, and then Lewis feels this need that this must diminish the story. I never thought this. My money's on Tolkien. <laughs> you know what? I don't. I don't know. Um, and actually, the the interesting thing to do would be to go to Warney's diaries, brothers and friends, and uh, he often records which inklings were there because there were nineteen total inklings. I just ordered a book by C. L. Wren, I think, um, who is a Beowulf scholar, and mentions the inklings in his foreword. And so it may have been inklings that we didn't know. The other bit about that, I have a note on my book. From a previous reading in the discarded image, Lewis talks about the long gaiwi, the long livers, the long aged ones. And so I wonder if they're, and he says himself, you know, are these angels or are these fairies or are these gods? Um, and so the long, long gaiwi are the long livers are the fairy. And so I think he's playing around with it. We also need to remember here briefly that. Um, as Brenton Dickinson, Dickinson discovered um, and published, there's a paragraph in the screw tape letters where Lewis says that he got the screw tape letters and translated them from Old Solar from Dr. Ransom. And so I think that Lewis is kind of playing around narratively, and there's a whole lot of stuff kind of going on, some of which hits the um, the cutting room floor. It 
it reminds me, you know, for lack of a better comparison of the, uh, the Beatles movie that Peter Jackson just did. And you see them kind of stumbling through the, the creative process until they come across these classics that we have, you know, loved and heard on Let It Be. That manuscript, by the way, I'm going to be viewing that in a week's time. I've already pre-ordered it from the stacks. Ah, lovely. Good for you. Laura will love you. By the way, pencils only, no pens. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we get another thing that I never really crossed my mind in this story, <laughs> which was the problem of the Adele speech. <laughs> what, what, what's, what, why was this raised? What, what, what's going on here? Oh, and before we get to that, did you notice the Dorothy Sayers reference and the drinking? The gaudy no. night. Yes. <laughs> I get elevated book, but not drunk on a gaudy night. Mm. So, nod to Dorothy. I do enjoy Lord Peter Winsley. Or is that how you say his name? Whimsy, yeah. Whimsy. I had no idea for the longest time that that was Dorothy Sayers. I read that years ago because a friend of mine back in like 2014 from San Diego, she said her favorite book was Gaudy Night. So I read Gaudy Night. Still for years, never put together that was Dorothy Sayers of the Lewis Dorothy Sayers, that, that oh. friendship. And so now I've read probably three or four of, from that series. Pretty yeah. decent. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, she's a she's an accomplished um, techie, they called him, detective yes. novelist. <laughs> and Gaudy Knight, by the way, comes out in 35, so it's probably still fresh on Lewis's mind, even though mm -hmm. he admits being kind of tone deaf when it comes to liking detective fiction. He doesn't really care for it all that much. But sorry, get back to the language. Yes, the problem of Eldil's speech. The problem is, how can persons without bodies, or at least not bodies like ours, speak and be heard? And there are basically two theories presented, that they manipulate the air to create sound waves, or they manipulate the ears of the people they want to hear. And uh, he runs these theories past Jay, who is a scientist he knows, who prefers the latter. And I couldn't find much on who Jay might be. I'm going to suggest it's probably JBS Haldane. And it could possibly also be Roman Jacobson. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. If anyone has any better suggestions, please let me know. Well, so it <laughs> seems like manipulate the air. Like it seems like there's assumption if you don't have bodies, you're not material. But like there, a spirit could still be sort of material, just a different type of material. So I feel like they could still manipulate the air. I guess it never really crossed my mind, but. Yeah, you, you trip over definitions here. It's like, what does it mean to have a spiritual uh, body or a yeah. to be an incorporeal body, but have a different kind of body than our own? You know, it all depends on what you mean. But again, I'm just sure that this was an argument that the Inklings had. Some uh -huh. bright spark went, wait a minute. If they don't have bodies, how can they speak? How can people hear them? Shall hmm. we just jump to the shutter jam, gentlemen? Well, actually, no, just before that, there is um, a question of, are the Eldilla angels? And Ransom says, we just don't really have the data for it. Mm. Personally, I think he wrote this just to try and throw more people off the scent of what he was trying to do, that he was trying to sneak past watchful dragons. And so if anyone that thought that, wait, these things are kind of like angels, wait, is this a religious book? You're like, no, 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 no. Just, just the nearest, nearest uh, anal analogy that we have. Catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol, right? Bingo. Um, yeah, I, I think it's clear that they're angels. All right. Well, so then the final nitpicking thing that I just didn't really get behind until I actually do appreciate the missing scenes. Ransom wants Lewis to point out in the text that their shutters on the ship jammed. Again, didn't cross <laughs> my mind. 
Nope. Without this, your description of our sufferings from excessive light on the return journey raises a very obvious question. Why didn't they close their shutters? I don't mm. believe your theory that readers never notice that sort of thing. I never noticed it. <laughs> I'm sure I should. Did you? Nope. <laughs> clearly, I'm learning real quick, though, before you answer this. I'm clearly the unintellectual reader. I've never been a detail-oriented person because there's not a single one of these that I that I noticed. And Andrew, you're a scholar. You're an incredibly intelligent individual. Be 100% honest. <laughs> Did you notice any of those things before you got to the postscript? All of them. <laughs> no, I think that um I think that what's happening here is that Lewis is returning the favor for the compliment that the inklings played of reading him and listening to him very very carefully. And also, I think that Lewis wasn't the only one who really had um quite a capacity for remembering things that were read aloud. Um, the Inklings, I don't know if they were taking notes or not, but I think that they paid really incredible intelligent or uh, incredible attention to what their friends were were reading. And so, um, and that's the kind of thing I believe. And the next time we talk to Diana, let's bring this up. I think those are the kinds of things that would go on at an Inklings meeting on Thursday night. I'm not sure they would have remembered that on Tuesday morning. <laughs> But I think on Thursday night, that's probably what was happening. Hmm. Hmm. Let's jump to the part that I do think is beautiful. I think so. In this next part, we're gonna we're about to see two missing scenes that he wished he would have written in here. And I will say, my view is, I think these two themes were properly communicated. Both these themes uh, are scenes effectively, honestly, hit home in a really beautiful sense. The themes we've discussed on the space, heavens, cosmos, and then the the proper orientation towards death. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I agree these would have been beautiful to work in. Reading these, I was like, these these would have been lovely. So mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think leaving them out, we didn't get the main themes. The book was still great without them. But I, I do support the idea of these scenes. So I'm really glad they are. So let's start with the first one. All right, gentlemen, what's what's the first scene? So the first scene is early in the morning on Malacandra with Three Throssa going to Medalorn to die. Mm. And I do think this is a response to an inkling discussion. The next scene we'll get to in a moment, but that one I think Lewis, I think he particularly wanted to end in this way, but I'll get to that in a moment. But yeah, he sees uh, these elderly Harossa going to Medalorn. They're going to go and talk to Oyasa, receive the final words of, of counsel. They're then going to just naturally die, all of them together. This is apparently something that's very known. If you weren't killed by a, the Hanakra, you basically know when you're going to die. And once they're dead, they will be unbodied, as we saw what happened with Hoy. And that's that. Yeah, let me read a couple of things from here, too. Yeah. Um, for in that world, except for some few whom the Hanakra get... Yes. No one dies before his time. Yes. All live out the full span allotted yes. to their kind. And a death with them is as predictable as birth with us. They no doubt, this is now skipping a number of sentences, they do not doubt their immortality. And friends, imagine that, by the way, guys, for a quick second here, that you, you, you live life not doubting immortality. Mm. I mean, that's already a profound statement. And friends of the same generation are not torn apart. You leave the world as you entered it with the men of your own year. Death is not preceded by dread, nor followed by corruption. It goes back mm -hmm. to that whole thing. 
we were given on Thokandra the knowledge of death, but not the wisdom of death. I think is the, the phrase Ooh. that it had used. I'd Matt, you're already. bringing it home on this final episode. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, yes, my goodness. Just absolutely. keep the praise coming. Say that again. Gas me up. Gas me up. <laughs> the knowledge of death, but not the wisdom. Yes. Yeah. I'm just stealing that from last episode or two ago. Mm. But thanks for that. That's so guys. good. I think that I can't help but but hear an echo. And remember, it comes in the early chapters of Fellowship of the Rings of the leaving of the elves because elves don't normally die or it's a long, long time and unless they're killed in battle. And so I hear a Tolkienian echo here mm. in, the, um, in the stately uh, approach towards death. All right, gentlemen, what's the second scene? We just got one beautiful one. Well, this one is at night. Ransom is messing around in the water with Hoy, and then he looks up and sees the night sky, and it is glorious. It's mm. blacker and brighter than on Earth. It's like the, the Milky Way is rising up on the horizon. I wasn't completely clear if it was the Milky Way or just like the Milky Way, um, but basically he's, he's seeing this light come, come across the horizon. But even this is only a preparation for what is to come, and that is Blundandra. Jupiter mm -hmm. rising. And Hoy cries out, Ahira. I don't know what that means. Maybe it's old solar for look, or maybe he's actually identifying Jupiter by some other name. I wasn't completely clear. Listeners are like, what's going on? <laughs> he's pulling some music out of his holster. <laughs> I'm so wondering, what, Andrew, what's that from? It's Gustav Holst. It's the, it's yes. the planets, specifically it's Jupiter. Jupiter. It's ah. Jupiter from Holst. And Michael Ward, again, all credit to him, um, acknowledged that Lewis had and Warney had been listening to Holst, both during 1935 when Lewis writes the planets and during his composition three years later of, um, of Out of the Silent Planets. So, yeah, listeners... Or read that section and then listen to Holst, um, Jupiter, uh, from his Planets album. Uh, magnificent. We find out that Jupiter is important, but Ransom doesn't quite know why. He is the center, great Meldalorn, throne, and feast. Mm -hmm. So he's connected feast. with Meldil somehow. Mm -hmm. And he says that they, they, they don't connect it with like a local habitation, that's where he lives, but there is something connecting the two. And as usual, the Cerrone would know. Yes, of course they would. Just so I'm clear, is this the idea of, because it says it's uninhabitable, at least by animals of the planetary type. And I'm assuming we're, we're animals of the planetary type. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is this, is this essentially discussing like the divine meets the human a little bit here, like divinization. And then we, we don't quite understand how we're able to enter into eternity as we're these temporal earthly beings, but somehow we are. Is that kind of what's being communicated here or no? I'm not sure if it's divinization so much as it is powers, principalities, orders of angels, row upon row of created creatures that are wrapped up in some of this. And that Jupiter is the center. And the reason why we have a myth of Zeus or a, a myth of Jupiter is because 
the Oryarsis of Jupiter. Jupiter himself is hugely important in the solar system mm -hmm. and in some ways um, more important. That local habitation, by the way, is a steal from, from uh, Shakespeare. And I wouldn't have known this had I not been listening to Malcolm. But in Midsummer Night's Dream, he says that the poet's job is to give to an airy nothing, a local habitation and a name. Right. Mm. And that's what Lewis is, I think, attempting here. All right. You guys, you gentlemen have to help me out with this because this is practically the last massive quote of this entire postscript. So it has to be of some importance. For as it was well said of the great Africanist that he was never less alone than when alone. So in our philosophy, no parts of this universal frame are less to be called solitary than those which the vulgar esteem most solitary, since the withdrawing of men and beasts signifieth, 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 but the greater frequency of more excellent creatures. Cicero, of course. Mm -hmm. De officius. Oh. So that's what that, 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 that's like a quote from Cicero. Yeah. He's yeah. talking about a Roman general, yeah, basically saying that he didn't head. mind being by himself. <laughs> Who's he, by the way? Like Lewis Africans. or Melaldale, right? Before. Well, this oh. is the question. To whom is he now applying this text? Yeah, I would cool. argue towards Jupiter, that here's Jupiter rising alone and solitary in the sky, but imbuing everything with life. And we've also just yeah. said that Jupiter can't support creatures of our type, but just because it's absence of our type of creature doesn't mean that it's uninhabited. And maybe it's inhabited by, uh, what does he say here, more excellent creatures. And remember that our God is endlessly creative. And Lewis is going to other planets to explore the possibility of other kinds of creation, right? God is crea endlessly creative. And who's to say that there are not other kinds of creatures inhabiting um, and not creatures as we crudely interpret them as either monstrous or servile, right? By the way, I've thrown into the chat, and David, I hope that you'll include the link uh, to Aaron Smildy's fantastic work. He annotates Out of the Silent Planet and explains many of these quotes and their origins. And so cheers to Aaron, who has <laughs> done Yeoman's work. Cheers. Well, then I guess the very final thing I'll ask you, gentlemen, more of this when you come. I'm trying to read every old book on the subject that I can hear of. Now that Weston has shut the door, the way to the planets lies through the past. Yes. If there's to be any more space traveling, it will have to be time traveling as well. That's also slightly confusing to me. He's referring to the Dark, tra the dark Tower, and the Dark Tower the dark is tower? a fourth um, science fiction novel that Lewis wrote um, that has to deal with time travel. He found a way to get around that and to do more space travel in Paralandra. But that comment is what led Lewis to write The Dark Tower. And on the, the verso of the script that starts The Dark Tower, um, you've got uh, the first paragraph. So I think it's written in 1939, if I'm not mistaken. I held it in my hands at the Bodley in the summer. So he's got the Dark Tower manuscript, but on the back of one of the pages, it says there once were four children whose names were Peter, Rose, and oh shoot. But it's his Peter first draft of Lucy. Of, doesn't uh, doesn't of, he have Lucy in both of them? No, it's Peter in both of them. 
okay. Peter, Roseanne, and Martin. But um, this story is mostly about Peter, who was the youngest. And so right around this time, Lewis tries to write the time travel novel, The Dark Tower, and I think he aborts it. And then he goes to Paralandra. He finds the, the conceit that, um, that helps him to write Paralandra. And maybe it's because if he writes it in 39, Charles Williams isn't it hasn't moved to Oxford and isn't in the Inklings yet. And so the Arthurian themes in Paralandra, I think perhaps come with the advent of, uh, of Charles Williams. Um, so I'd love to dip into Paul Fittis and see what he thinks about this. Uh, Oxford theologian who just wrote a new book on Lewis and Williams. So yeah, lots of stuff here right at the end. And if listeners would like to learn more about the Dark Tower, Andrew interviews Dr. Junius Johnson on this show in a few episodes. So Junius. David, you, did you already interview the, the Dante gentleman? I have indeed, Dr. Jason Baxter. When's that one released? Uh, once we're done with space travel, basically. So we've, oh, we've, we've got a handful more episodes after this one. We then have our retrospective once we've had a little bit of time to mull everything over. And then we'll start Jack's bookshelf and begin that with Dr. Jason Baxter mm. and talk about Dante. Mm. David, yeah. I was supposed to interview that individual, but David was gracious with work. I couldn't. And, uh, but I'm super excited to listen to that conversation because of Dante's influence on this. So that is going to be a fun one. Anyways, before the question of the week, any final concluding thoughts, gentlemen? Just that um, as with all of Lewis that I found, it bears careful rereading um, and it rewards, as Jerry Root has said, Lewis rewards careful reading and rereading. Um, and so I hope that you have enjoyed this season and I hope that it inspires you listeners to continue to read your Lewis. And my final comment is that we are overrunning and get on with the map. <laughs> <laughs> Question of the week, guys. I wanted to keep this one simple, but simple, but it could be deep, honestly. Do you feel this book has, I'm going to rephrase this in real time reinvigorated your sense of wonder and awe towards the heavens. Okay. So, and I'm going to rewrite your question. <laughs> so instead of a closed-ended question, let's make it an open-ended question. How has your reading of Out of the Silent Planet reinvigorated your understanding of the space, uh, of what happens uh, in the heavens? And again, you can email us guys at contact at pintswithjack.com. Go to our website. There's a contact form. Go to our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all pints with Jack. You will find this stuff. Send us DMs. David reads them all and forwards them along. And I have here the last call for our drinks, guys. And so I want to thank our listeners, our top tier supporters, Matt one, Matt two, the future Matt three, who is eventually coming Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shay, Kay, Paul, Gitt, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of our listeners, and we've, we've received a lot of prayer requests on our Slack channel recently, too, which is just beautiful. We pray for them every Tuesday. We want to thank Taylor for cutting out all of our ums and ahs and my ums. <coughs> thank you, Taylor. <laughs> and so if you enjoyed this episode, please raise a glass of bitter and join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Stinyamas. 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 Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>